Ogumbawale for the win. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard McDowell, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at LockdownWBB. Very proud and excited about the fact that we have expanded. You have us almost every day, whether it's Gabe Ibrahim or Eric Ayala. There are vital voices when it comes to women's basketball who you're going to be able to hear. Make sure you follow us and, and, and enjoy it. And also, make sure that you take a look at Built Go. Built Go is a solution to breaking through your wall. They come in 1.5 ounce packages, easy to take on the go, which I'm told that some people do. Me, I'm locked in my house, so breaking through my wall just means going up and down the stairs. But peanut butter, honey, chocolate, coconut, and chocolate mint, three different flavors for Built Go. Visit BuiltGo.com and use the promo code LOCKED. You'll get 20% off your next order. Promo code LOCKED for 20% off at BuiltGo.com. And somebody who breaks through walls all the time and is such a pleasure to chat with and has had a really interesting 2020. And I know we all have, but Corey Close, head coach of UCLA in particular. Corey, I want to start by talking about how you stay so positive. And I want to just quote something you said on social media. You talked about how you focus on I get to over I have to. Is that easier or harder to do in 2020? Oh, I think it's I think it's hard to do all the time, but it's really hard has been hard to do in 2020. But I think it, that's what makes it even more important. All right, I think that uh, we have to set our minds to the places that we want to go because if we li- if we leave it, we call it in our program, it's either discipline or default. And I think all of us, our default mode is. Oh, this is so hard. Oh, man, I I can't believe this has happened. Oh, here we go again, another event in 2020. That if we don't set our minds to something different, that's where we'll go. And and I I don't want my mind to go there. So if I want to go somewhere else, I got to really be disciplined about that. And so literally every morning I try to write out or say out loud 10 things I'm thankful for or 10 I get to's rather than 10 I have to's. And, I mean, it's a discipline. Um, but I think there's so much on the line in terms of our mindset and sort of our contented hearts, which I really want to have a contented heart, even in really difficult times. And I don't come by that naturally. So I got to really work at it. So sure. that's, it's been more so than telling other people when I'm saying some of those things on social media, I'm telling myself, I'm reminding myself. But it's been really important to me through all the disappointments, through all the intensities, through all the uh, really difficult uh, conversations that need to be had is that, you know, to remind myself every day, I I get to do this. I get to have a job I love. I get to have a job, period. A Mm -hmm. lot of people don't have that. So uh, it's really been uh, really a key to my sanity during this time. I mean, something that is always striking to me when we chat is the amount that the mental side of this game is a focus for you. And so that strikes me as something so vital, like you said, especially here in 2020. And so if you, if, if I could take you back to March, I know, and I, I'm an observer, I'm, I'm covering the sport as a journalist, but I was disappointed not being able to see how this 26 and five team that was coming together, how that story ends. How yeah. in that moment 
did you make your peace with that, both for yourself and with your team? Well, it's interesting. That's sort of when the rubber, it's easy to talk about the mental side or the, the journey over the destination and all the coach speak that we have. But that's where the rubber really meets the road, right? Because uh, I was disappointed. I, I, you know, I still remember Japrice Dean's face. I mean, she was really my lone senior in that. And, um, and just the pain of that and the disappointment of that. <clears throat> um, and I, I, you know, I think I just tried to go on parallel paths and meaning that I wasn't going to take away her disappointment. I, it, her, her feelings are her feelings. My feelings were my feelings. And I, we were sad. It was, there was a grieving process. And at the same time, um, I was really grateful that that's never been our uh, focused mission. We talk all the time about our, in our program is that our quest for excellence has to be relentless. I mean, it's got to be all the time. And you have to learn to compete with yourself uh, first, as well as every opponent you're ever going to have. Uh, and at the same time, the only two things that are going to stay with you for the rest of your life from these four years is who you become and who you impact. And so I remember I'm in that locker room. I'm telling the players that our season is canceled. And I just kept reminding them, I kept saying, thank goodness that our identity is not by where things end. Our identity and our growth comes from the journey and who we have become and who we have impacted along the way. And no one can ever take that away from you. That's not going to not make you sad. <laughs> it's not going to tick away your disappointment. But I do think there's a, a piece in that. Uh, I think there's a sort of a, that's how you sort of rectify your disappointment in the end is that, you know what, um, I have been committed the entire time to um, being relentless about mastering my craft and about being a great teammate and um, about really learning habits of excellence. Uh, and, you know, even though I didn't get to end the way I wanted to, I still have all those things that I have poured into. Those are not for naught. And, uh, and I think that I think it was hard, and I don't know if I did it perfectly, but I tried to stay in sort of that. Uh, I wanted to give them the freedom to grieve, and at the same time, I wanted to remind them about their journey and what we really value and what nobody else can take away. And I guess having that bigger picture viewpoint of it makes the grieving process easier, but it, as you're talking about it, when did you feel, and, and maybe that's presumptuous to say that you do even now, but did you feel like you had made your peace with that end to a season and about to go forward into the next one? Well, I almost think with all the disappointments that just kept coming, <laughs> there wasn't time to um, wallow, at least as a leader. I, I may, you Maybe if you asked each of our individual players, they probably have had different times, but you know, right after it gets canceled, then you're sending them home, then they're adjusting to remote learning. Then we have the, you know, the, the issues of uh, racial injustice that really rocked many of our players' worlds and, and uh, in dealing with that. So I didn't feel like there was sort of like, as Coach Yao used to say, there was no time to swim laps in the pity pond. You, you know, you better swish your feet in there and then get out because we got the next thing that's coming at you. So. True. Um, you know, I think that just the circumstances of all the change and all of the adjustments that needed to happen, I just don't think that was an option. Your team was at the forefront of this. You know, Natalie Cho speaking out on this and so many others. It seemed almost like it was a precursor to much of what then happened over the summer 
with the WNBA and elsewhere. And, and, and I guess, you know, we we're talking a little bit about this off air before we started, but it feels like the type of year that will be long remembered when it comes to women's basketball as a whole. And I wonder what you yeah. feel like we've learned about the sport and, and in what ways the sport has defined itself this year. Well, I mean, we were in such a healthy place uh, as a sport. So viewership what had been, you know, way up. Uh, the finances sold out Final Fours. Uh, you know, the past several years, uh, WBCA membership, uh, you name it. Um, I just thought the health of the sport was in a really good place. And we were, our, our momentum and trajectory was really good. And, um, and I think that... <clears throat> On the one hand, we're going to have some, you know, the finances are going to be tough for many programs for a while, and there's going to be a lot of obstacles. And I think um, trying to really focus in on, okay, well, what did this teach us, though? Um, and I think we're going to need each other a lot. I think that's one of the things the WNBA, um, as you and I sort of touched on before, before we went on air, is, you know, they they didn't they quested for excellence. I, I mean, Jordan Canada and Noel Quinn are two Bruins that are on the a coaching staff and a player for the Seattle Storm. And, and boy, that championship means a lot. And they are competitive people, and that's amazing. But you know what else made it so meaningful is that throughout that entire WNBA experience, that they were not only questing for a championship, but they were trying to be involved in something bigger than themselves. And and really and especially uh, with black women and especially and and how they came alongside that and and how they uni uh, in a unified way said hey we are going to fight something that we're passionate about in the area of our society and so it goes back to sort of what we talked about before it was about who they wanted to impact they knew that that would be more long lasting than the championship at the end of the road right, right. and I think they're really proud of that. And I think our, our, we need to learn from that as a college system and as competitive as we, as we all are. And, you know, as uh, I think Gino said a few years ago, it's not like we're going to go uh, have a glass of wine after a game where we're beating each other up. You know, like there's a competitive side to that. And, and that's great. It brings out really good stuff in us. And life is a competitive world. So I don't have any issue with that. And I'm not trying to diminish that. But I think it has to be in context. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have to really be flexible. I think we have to sing each other's praises. Um, you know, the just advertising dollars and corporate sponsorship in the women's game, that's going to be more difficult. We need to be positive. We need to be a, a sport that people are proud to watch because of the way that we compete, but also the way in which we conduct ourselves. And, you know, I just think there's going to be a lot of ways we need to share ideas. We need to grow each other's programs, you know, sort of like rising tide lifts all boats. And, um, and if we're going to not just survive this uh, crazy 2020 and how it affects our game, but not only survive, but thrive and grow from it and find new innovation and, and cooperative growth from this. And it's going to take us all taking our institutional hats off um, and competing like crazy, but also realizing it's about something bigger than ourselves. I mean, you're saying this, and, and the Pac-12 is obviously, <laughs> you know, a, a battlefield <laughs> every time yeah. out. And, you know, you again, to, to my... You might need to call and remind me. You might need to call and remind me what I just said the Pac-12 season, okay? It's true, <laughs> true. But listen, I, it, they are deeply compelling games every time out. And just the fact that there's an expanded Pac-12 season is going to be, I think, a real treat for people coming up with this season. But how do you measure that balance 
in a conference where, again, there are there are a lot of institutionalists who are running programs. You, you know, you you yeah. among them. But what, yeah. where and how do you strike that balance? And you know, is it the next day? Is it how, how do you, how do you go about uh, making it? Especially, you know, I, I'm just going to say, people come to play your team. Your teams are relentless. Your teams are mm -hmm. physical and they battle. And so, obviously, you're able to set the tone in that way. So, how do you do it? Like in practice, when yeah. uh, you know, when rubber hits the road. Today, I'll tell you in practice. Uh, just the, you know, earlier this morning, I, I, you know, we talk all the time about if you really want to be elite, if you if you got to be able to get to your edge, and what that means is that the edge is where your talent runs out, and you have to have develop the relentless discipline and skill to truly reach your potential. And and the only way to have that kind of toughness, and thank you for saying that about how our team plays, but there's no shortcuts to that. You have to be. I mean, you gotta like if you. I always say it's not a matter of if you really love your teammate, you're gonna just compete like crazy. You're gonna want to rip their head off in practice, knowing that not only is it gonna make you better, it's gonna make them better in the end. Games are gonna be easy, um, and if it's not, it's not a matter of cheap shots. It's a matter of man, I'm gonna be so excellent that you're gonna have no choice but to bring out the best in me and me in you. Um, and so, you know, and I'll tell you, we got to the edge today. I pushed some people. They might say, you didn't just get me to the edge. You might have pushed me over the edge. <laughs> but, uh, you know, sometimes 18 to 22-year-olds don't quite agree with me about how valuable that edge is. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think that it's um, you got to sort of flip adversity on its head a little bit. It's like I remember what Tony Bennett said uh, when uh, they won the national championship, and he was referring back to when they had lost. Um, you know, to the number 16 seed the year before. He mm -hmm. said, adversity, if handled correctly, can buy you a ticket to a place you would not have been able to go otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, we got to compete every moment, and we got to look at every problem like, let's go conquer it. Let's go win this drill. Let's go win this day. And there's got to be like a grit inside of you. And there's also got to be, I would need to say, it needs to be coupled with perspective. So when it's done, and, you know, you're going to media or you're going to the press conference afterwards, uh, you know, a hard-fought game. And, um, you know, I'm, our very first game of the Pac-12 season is December, I think, 4th or 5th or something like that. And I don't think it's been announced yet, but at Arizona. Mm -hmm. And, um, man, they're, they're going to be such a good team. And we're going to battle, and it's going to be unbelievable. And Charisma Osborne and Ari McDonald and all these different kinds of matchups. And we're going we're gonna to go after it. And it's, there's going to be no love lost for those 40 minutes. And after it, we, I think Adia and myself are going to realize, wow, that forced us to rise up. That forced us to do things that if it wasn't for such a high-level game, we might not have found new gears inside of ourselves as a team that maybe we wouldn't have found otherwise. So, um, you know, there's there's going to be adversity in every Pac-12 game because the competition is just so fierce. Um, but how you view that adversity, that's where the perspective comes, and you gotta you gotta have the right perspective. And you know, I think uh, you gotta let it bring out things in you that uh, maybe wouldn't have been brought out otherwise. But you know, I just I think it it really gets misinterpreted. Howard, to be honest with you, I think people when you talk about perspective, when you talk about uh, putting others above yourself and, and doing things the right way. They think you're soft as a competitor. And I think it's just the opposite. 
I think when you understand your why and you understand how important this is and you understand the impact you can have, uh, it actually makes you more fiercely competitive, not less. And so uh, I hope our program models that in a way that, uh, that accomplishes a great impact but also um, accomplishes competitive excellence at the same time. Well, I mean, the, the, the team does every year. In, you know, you, you guys, every single year in the last five years, and this is one of my favorite numbers about your program, each of the last five years, you're in the top 20 in the country in rebounding percentage. And your personnel changes year to year, and, and you've done it with different players, and you've done it with guards outperforming what you would typically expect off the boards, and you've done it with mm-hmm. people like Monique Billings, and you've done it with mm-hmm. even some traditionally undersized bigs, you know, when we're talking about Michaela Anyawera, who is not right. at six feet tall what you would typically talk about as the obvious uh, leader of, a, of, of your rebounding core, but somebody mm-hmm. who, I, when I talk to WNBA scouts, they, they say that Mikhail's got a chance to be the first overall pick. So yeah. I, I guess what I wonder, and, and before we talk about her specifically, what is it that allows UCLA and your UCLA team year after year to be near the top? Is it the players you're recruiting specifically to it? Is it a system? Is it something internal that you're able to build into these players? How do we how do we see that every year? Well, I'm, I'm out on my back deck here, and there's a helicopter, so I'm just walking inside. It's true family life here on this podcast. Yes. So, um, <laughs> but uh, I think that um, it's a great question. I, I think that it's a little bit by necessity, which I would like for um, that number is really good. Our shooting percentage number hasn't been as good. And so we've told our team, look, um, there's a lot of w- ways to win basketball games. And if you're not shooting, for instance, from the three-point line as well as you want to, just go get another opportunity. We try to get – we chart this every day. Uh, we try to get 45% or better of all of our misses on the offensive end mm-hmm. and 75% um, or more – on the defensive end and it's we chart it we honor it we hold them accountable to it it's just a non-negotiable so i think part of it is that it's become a part of our culture and but i also think we want to win and if we don't if we we haven't shot the ball as well as i would like we are shooting the ball hopefully better this year but um quite frankly it's interesting so far in the preseason i haven't been as pleased with our our rebounding it's sort of like when you expect the ball to go in as much sometimes we have a little bit less of an edge and my challenge as a leader and as a coach is to not let us lose our edge with rebounding just because we're shooting a little bit better. And that's hard to do. That's why there's not a lot of great rebounders out there because you sort of got to expect every shot to be missed and you got to go after it and you just say, I can't allow myself to get boxed out or vice versa on the defensive end. Just like, you know, we fire out every time you get one, one hard shot and that's it. We lock the door. Um, But I think that, you know, one of the reasons we, we, you know, we've been, really good we've been you know however many straight sweet 16s or be ranked really high but we haven't been to a final four yet we haven't won the pac-12 championship yet and uh what we're going to need to do quite frankly is we need to maintain that edge from a rebounding standpoint that aggression that consistency while increasing our uh shooting percentage our ability to stretch teams from the three-point line and and some of those uh numbers at the same time and and that's challenging but that's what we got to do if we want to be a national championship level team and it's interesting because like you said the offensive numbers overall have not been 
uh, matching your rebounding numbers, but you are the last three years, your top 20 in the country in field goal attempts, each of those three years, even though you guys are playing at a pace that, you know, typically runs between 150th to around 182nd uh, in the league, uh, in division one rather. Um, and so I know it's been sort of an offensive, uh, almost an offensive shortcut for you, but I also know this team is built differently at the offensive end you know, for one thing, there's a change in point guard continuity, you, you know, to go from mm-hmm. Jordan Canada to Japrice Jep- Dean, there, there's a luxury that goes with that. And, I, and I'm wondering how point guard shapes out for you this year and whether you even think about the position differently just because there isn't that necessarily obvious uh, succession line the way you've had for, what, the last five, six right. years. Right. No, it's a great point. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to be one person. What we've sort of done is the – the good news about it is we've had some great point guards in, in uh, Jordan Canada and Caprice Dean, and, and they've really done a good job for us. But they were both a little bit more ball-dominant, uh, off the dribble, pick and roll, um, and really forcing the action um, and make two to guard them off of the bounce a lot. And so they, they, really, they really were initiating our offense off of their abilities a lot of the time, which, is, which I thought fit our strengths that, those particular years. Now, I would say we're doing much more point guard by committee. That's going to be uh, Lindsey Cassaro and Charisma Osborne. And, um, and, you know, honestly, we've been playing this five-out uh, offense um, similar to a lot of the teams that you saw in the uh, NBA. Um, and, you know, it's really a shared thing. And we're doing a lot more off the pass, a lot more off the cut, hmm. um, a lot more after multiple ball reversals. Uh, and, you know, we're trying not to rely so much on creating turnovers, steal, score mentality because that'll win you some games in November and December and January. But when you talk about March, I've been studying actually with our guards some final four games from the past several years. And we actually just looked at the Notre Dame Mississippi State uh, game sure. um, back there and that, that what an incredible final. Well, one of the things you learned is you start um, overtime. And it's 53-51, I think. And I asked our point guards, um, our, well, Lindsey Cassaro and Charisma Osborne, okay, um, what do you think their averages were during the rest of the year? You know, they were in the upper 70s, almost 80 points a game. Mm-hmm. But when you get to that point, you're not just going to steal score with people at that level. You're going to have to grind out some really difficult possessions because the teams are just so good. And so I think that for us, we've had to, if we want to make that next, step in our program I think we're a really really good program right now but we want to be a national championship contender on a consistent basis that's the adjustment we're going to need to make is we need to not rely just on that one point guard we need to have a little bit more fluidity and we've been talking a lot about more sort of like Steph Curry um, and Clay Thompson you know and how they share that and how they go back and forth and sometimes playing off the ball sometimes playing um, with the ball in their hands, but doing a lot more off the screen, off the cut, off the catch, and uh, you know, and doing things off of the pass more than off of the bounce as much. So that's a little shift that I think people will see in how we're running offense, and that's I think um, our adjustment to the kind of backcourt that we have this year and how to put them in the best position to be successful. So that all makes sense, and it's really interesting, and especially you know when you think about somebody like Charisma Osborne, who her the number that jumps off the page for me with her was she had a turnover percentage of nine point two percent, which is the type of ball protection that you expect from an upperclassman, and so. 
having her as part of that makes a lot of sense, but it also is really intriguing when you speak about five out. And so there are two players that I think seem likeliest to benefit from that, uh, Lindsay being one of them, Natalie Cho being the other. And in both of these cases, you know, a situation where running a five-out offense leads to potentially mismatches for them, whether it's taking shots from the outside or, you know, even be able to, I I would think at times, post people up. And so in both of those instances, their usage rates have been very low. They've been extremely selfless players. And something, you know, Cheryl Reeve talks about, it's not just about being an effective shooter, it's being a willing shooter. That's an important evolution. How much of that are you seeing from Lindsay and from Natalie? And how how much is that a key to your season reaching the potential you want it to reach? Well, I think that's an excellent point. And I think I'm going to steal that quote from Cheryl Reeves from you. So uh, I'll give you credit too. But <laughs> but, they, but I think that's really true. I, I think that's what it's forced is that when you're running some uh, sets or you're more of a pick-and-roll team, what can happen is all the other people end up staring at the people in the pick-and-roll, you mm-hmm. know, and they're not thinking about what's the next attacking play I can be ready for that I can contribute to. And whether it be a willing shooter, becoming a willing shooter and an anticipatory shooter, but also an attacker. What about the cut? And I want to get us all the people outside of with the ball. I want those other four people to get their eyes off of the ball and onto their defenders and onto the space. Where's the space they want to attack? Five out is not we're going to stand outside the three-point line and jack three. That's Mm -hmm. not what it is. It's spacing the floor so that multiple people can attack the basket, post up, um, cut. We want to get layups and post ups from multiple people in multiple ways, in unpredictable ways. And, uh, and so I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, we've really uh, harped on with Lindsey Cassaro and with Natalie Cho that you've got to have an attack mindset. And we talk about 0.5 seconds on the, uh, on the catch. You've got to be shooting it, driving it, swinging it, you know, and it's got to be quick decisions, but I want them to be attacking confident decisions. And so um, I think to the extent that we can do that, it's actually going to make Charisma Osborne and uh, Michaela Onionwet's job easier, actually, because um, it's going to release some of that pressure and people aren't going to be able to send double teams in the same way because of the attack mentality of some of these other players. And so, you know, and Lauren, Lauren Miller and uh, Emily Basor from Germany is going to, some people told me, oh, she could be the next Satu Sabli. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Okay. I'm, I'm excited <laughs> about her, but that's a tall order. Well, she's been pretty darn good. She has really caught, I mean, she's been much, much better than I thought um, so far. And she will be a major impact player for us this year. But she adds to that, too, and I think it's really important that she has the confidence. I, I always say age ain't nothing but a number. If you, you get the freedom that you're willing to earn. Mm-hmm. And so far, Emily has earned a whole lot of freedom by the way she's performed so far in this preparation process. I, I mean, it's really interesting, and, and obviously I cannot wait to see that in action. But I am curious because, you know, to go back to Michaela, it, it feels like you want to talk about Final Four teams. It feels like having that transcendent star helps get you there and helps you win. And so when you think about Michaela's uh, senior season, I'm wondering a couple of things. One is, 
I, it takes me back to a conversation I had with Dawn Staley a few years ago when Asia Wilson was about to be a senior. Yeah. And she talked about Asia in terms of this year I need to make her more like Candace Parker. And the reason why wasn't even so much so that South Carolina reached its possible ceiling, which it ultimately came pretty close, but it was also yeah. making sure Asia was ready for the pros. Players come out of right. your program and they're ready for the pros. And when I talk to WNBA coaches, you hear that over and over again about the UCLA players. So what does Michaela need to do between now and the day next spring her name is called? And do you think she has the potential to be that top overall pick? Well, she definitely has the potential, you know. Um, but the other thing about it is I don't really think she cares. And she doesn't ever get distracted by that. She's like, oh, that'll take care of itself. I just need to be consistent and keep growing and adding to my toolbox. <laughs> She's just one of the most delightful kids you, I've ever been around in terms she plays hard every day. She's a great teammate. And so, but she isn't what the, the challenge that I'm interested to see with her is you talk about that star quality, like into the game. Uh, everyone knows that we want to get the ball in Michaela's hands, mm-hmm. and everyone's going to try to prepare for it and stop it, and, and you just can't because she's just that good. You know, an Enrique kind of situation or Victoria Vivian's, um, you know, in some of those plays against Louisville in that Final Four and, and the semifinal. I mean, just, you know, it's been performance after performance, right, of that player. And, and you, Asia Wilson is, of course, an excellent example of that. And so, you know, I think that will be an interesting challenge because that really isn't her personality. It isn't like, give me, give me the ball and I'll put you on my back and let's go. And she does it with more of just a, this is what I do. I show up every night. I, com- I out-compete people. I out-prepare people. And I just want to do whatever it takes for our team to win. And so it'll be interesting through the year how, and, and, and the great thing about the Pac-12 is it's going to force it from the beginning, right? right. You're going to have these moments where, that's going to ha- not we're not going to wait till a final four to have to do that we're going to have it with four teams in the top 10 already in pac 12 if, right? if so, you open at arizona um, that's a that's a virtual potential final four matchup right there exactly yeah. exactly so you know i think that she's going to have to learn what does that look like just for her personality hmm. you know i i always coach wooden used to say um the biggest form of partiality is to coach every kid the same and you know and i i really believe that and so she doesn't have to be just like Arike or, or you know, or you know, Asia Wilson or whoever else. Um, she needs to figure out how she can have the right mindset for her, and how and how we can play around that. And so, you know, I, I'm not sure I have a total answer yet for that, but I can tell you this: that um, I think the reason our players, um, I have to give a shout out to my assistant coaches, that the reason our players are in the pros, every single one of our players that have been drafted and made rosters in the last four years have all started significant amount of games as rookies. And I think it's because my assistant coaches, the work they put in, in player development, in film watching, in teaching the basketball IQ, um, I think our players are able to adapt quickly to the new surroundings, and their fundamentals are really, really solid. And and that credit all goes to my assistant coaches. And so, but that'll be interesting to see, I think, for, um, for Michaela, this year is how that plays out. How does her personality play out? And if I was a WNBA coach, I'd want her on my roster. That's all I know. And playing that five out uh, offensive set is only going to help the adjustment all the more, I would think as well. Yeah. And well, you have, you know, a lot of, you really look at um, the WNBA, there's only about three teams that are playing with a traditional low post or high, low game 
I would they, they play some different versions, but most of the time you're playing with an empty empty key for most True. of the time. You know, Seattle, New York, uh, you know, Connecticut, um, a lot of the time with uh, Minnesota. So you know, you just I think that um, that is sort of the direction our game is going, and I think uh, you know if our if I'm going to do a good job. Uh, preparing pros, which 90% of our players that come to us want to become pros, mm-hmm. then I have to adjust as well as a, as a teacher so that they're not only prepared to win championships in college, but they're prepared to um, be really good as professionals as well. And there's adjustments that we as college coaches need to make to uh, to be able to per- perpetuate that system. Well, people, people notice it. People in the game notice it. At the WNBA level, they notice it. And based on the short lists I'm seeing from some of the players who are coming up through the ranks, the players of tomorrow are noticing it as well. So before I let you Thank go, you. I, I have two questions about it, one on the court, one off the court. And one is, sure. on the court, you guys obviously are in a season that's different from any we've ever had. And it's yeah. going to be... A strange one it's going to be one where I know health and safety is coming first and foremost and thought about in a way that is different than even yeah. just your traditional year where a lot more of it is taken for granted so what does success feel like look like to you when you think about it this year oh, Wow that's a great question well I think success I hope it doesn't change you know um my goal is to be an uncommon transformational coach every year that teaches mentors and equips young women for life beyond ucla and but i just got to win a lot of games in order to keep my job to keep executing my mission so i hope it isn't really different for me as a leader and if it is i sort of need to check myself because um i've really tried to never measure my definition of success by uh where we land in an ncaa tournament or mm-hmm. championship now it doesn't diminish the level of excellence i'm pursuing in in regard to that and if anyone who knows me it doesn't matter if it's tiddlywinks or a national championship i hate losing um but i really have never defined my success based on that or our success based on that so i really think you know coaching for usa basketball has been a great experience for me and one of the things that it's taught me is they always talk about gold medal habits, you know, and I, and I think about that and, and the boy, that's led to a lot of gold medals for them. And sure. I want to be a coach that creates championship habits that whether that be in, uh, in life, in, on the court, uh, in learning how to compete in the corporate world, whatever it leads to, uh, I want to, I, I think success looks like to me this year, maybe even more so, and maybe it's determined internally a little bit more this year, mm-hmm. but um, I want us to be really good at um, giving and perpetuating championship habits that, uh, you know, facilitate how we give to our society, uh, how we operate in the business world, how we um, handle the you know, really difficult uh, political environment that we are in now. You know, all of these different things that we're dealing with, I want to create habits in our young women that uh, can sort of spill into all those other areas, you know. Um, But I also think, too, you know, I think you and I have talked about in the past how important, I bet you if you had on 10, uh, you know, Division One coaches and you asked them all, what percentage of the game is mental? And I bet, don't you think they would all answer probably 80, 75, 80%? Absolutely. Absolutely. If not more. Absolutely. If if not more. So, but if you went to all those same coaches' practices for a week and you watched how they interacted, what their language was like, do you, 
how you know the interesting question would be how much of their uh, teaching environment reflected their belief that 80 90 percent of the game is mental true I would say very low yeah most of the time that comes into because they don't know how to teach it or you know there's not a clear definition where I like if I'm putting in a new five out offense we're going to break it down this way and these are going to be our progressions and this is how we're going to do it and this is the film I'm going to study it's very clear cut on that way whereas mental training and conditioning is a little bit more ambiguous but one of the ways I'm going to define my uh, our success this year in the environment that we in is how well I teach mental conditioning and the mental side of the game and and that means how you handle adversity getting to neutral we read as a book this summer it takes what it takes by Trevor Moat hmm. and um, and we talk about getting to neutral thinking and the next right behavioral step and you know he's um, Russell Wilson's mental conditioning coach and and so I really am I told our team today before practice remember that it is going to be our commitments and our mental training that are going to lead us to our destiny not our feelings and not our adversity and so I, I think if I can help us strengthen our response our resolve and the mental um, side of adjusting to difficult things there's going to be nothing fair about this year there's nothing I mean you're going to have different games canceled, postponed. You're not all going to play the same opponents. I mean, it doesn't matter that it's scheduled in the Pac-12 for a double round robin. None of us think it's going to end up that way. Nope. And so your ability, my my ability to uh, teach the mental response, whether it's within the game or even to circumstances um, in preparation for games, uh, if I can really do a great job being an excellent mental conditioning coach, uh, I will consider that a big success. Well, it sounds like appropriate and the best possible training for 2020 and for 2021, <laughs> whether you're playing basketball or not. So that, exactly. that all makes a ton of sense to me. But I'm going to let you visualize with me for the last question. When this is all over, when things have returned to normal, what is the thing you're missing at this moment that you are most excited about experiencing once again? <laughs> oh, um, and you know, we used to we used to complain about this all the time, and this and this is I don't know that my my answer might be uh, different with more contemplation. But the thing <laughs> that just comes out of my mind is that we um, used to complain as a coaching staff, and sort of jokingly, but sort of not, that our players were in our offices all the time. And uh, we would be like, we can't even get any work done. You guys are in the offices, like we practice in the morning, and then you guys go to a couple classes, and then all of a sudden you're in our offices. And sure. like, it's like you guys don't understand that we have scouting reports and recruits to call and you know all these other things. But now we're not allowed to be in our offices, and our players aren't. We don't have that interaction, and we I, I we complained about it and we teased about it. Um, but right now, I just wish. Uh, you know, I'm sitting at home right now as we talk because that's what I have to do because of this environment. But I sure wish I was in my office and that I was going to see those laughing, you know, kids coming from class, stopping by to get a piece of candy, to hang out, to tease us. And uh, I'm really uh, I wish that just they say the average Division One basketball player spends thirty five hundred hours in their sport over four years mm -hmm. and only four percent of those are in games. And I feel like I'm missing out on a lot of the 96% right now that I really enjoy as sure. a coach. And, uh, and so I, when things get back to normal, whatever normal means, 
uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna not tease and, and uh, get on them about coming to buy the office because quite frankly I really miss it. It's, I, I totally can relate. I will never complain about school pickup again when it's all said and done with my children. <laughs> That's exactly right. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, I think that would be one thing that just uh, you popped into my head when you asked that question. I understood and can totally relate to it. Well, Corey Close, it's always a pleasure to chat with you about all things basketball and beyond. So thank you so much and wish you all the best of luck this season. Well, and thank you. And Howard, I don't want to just, I want to um, just tell you how much I appreciate all you do for our game. And, uh, you know, I, I told you beforehand that I'm not doing as many of these, but I didn't want to miss out on yours because you are one of the people that I think gets the heartbeat of women's basketball. You work like crazy to tell the stories of these amazing women. And I just want to thank you. You're really uh, important to us. And I follow you year around on social media and you're not only great for the game, you're a great human being, and so it's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you for all you do. It means a lot coming from you, and it is absolutely my pleasure. All the best. Very good.